The Word of God that we read this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to begin reading with verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter. You know this portion very well because it's quoted in our Lord's Supper form. This is the one place where the institution of the Supper is repeated. But perhaps what we forget is the context of why the Apostle repeats this. We recently preached out of 1 Corinthians 13 and heard the Word of God on that, and I referenced the many divisions that were found in that church, and one of them was with regard to the Lord's Supper. The Apostle is responding really to two things that were going on with regard to the Supper. Is one that it showed divisions, that there were divisions. In fact, he even refers to those divisions as heresies. That word heresy really can be interpreted as a sect or division, a schism. Those words are all related. And it was made clear at the Lord's Supper that there were these divisions. And the other thing was the Lord's Supper had really been turned into an ordinary Supper. It was not anything holy, and so there was a lot of unholy, really, behavior that was being tolerated. So that's what the Apostle is addressing. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, 
We are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. We read that far in God's holy, inspired word. This morning we consider Lord's Day 29, 28, sorry, 28. How art thou admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that thou art a partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross and of all his benefits? Thus, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of Him, adding these promises. First, that His body was offered and broken on the cross for me and His blood shed for me, as certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me. And further, that He feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life. With His crucified body and shed blood, as assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. What is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? It is not only to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ and thereby to obtain the pardon of sin and life eternal, but also, besides that, to become more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Ghost, who dwells both in Christ and in us, so that we... Though Christ is in heaven, and we on earth are notwithstanding flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and that we live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are by one soul. Where has Christ promised that he will as certainly feed and nourish believers with his body and blood as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? In the institution of the supper, which is thus expressed, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. This promise is repeated by the holy apostle Paul where he says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, because we are all partakers of that one bread. 
beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the extensive treatment of the Heidelberg Catechism on the subject of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that's found not only here in Lord's Day 28, which I believe is the longest of all 52 Lord's Days, but also that that treatment continues over a number of Lord's Days, ought to teach us about the importance and significance of this particular sacrament. The importance and significance of the sacrament has to do to its very nature, that it's the sacrament that's given to mature, baptized members of the church to, number one, strengthen their faith, that it actually strengthens and confirms faith. The sacrament is therefore as important as food and drink are for your earthly physical life. As necessary as it is for you to eat and drink several times a day, and by that you receive nourishment and strengthening, so also is the Lord's Supper. The extensive treatment also is due to the fact that in the Lord's Supper we eat and drink not with the physical mouth and hand, but by faith. Faith functions as the hand and mouth of the soul, and in order to do that, faith must understand, it must be mature, it must be able to realize what is being symbolized, and therefore lay hold of the food and ingest it. And so it requires explanation. Not only that, but the extensive treatment is a reflection of the devil's own work, who, recognizing the very importance of this spiritual food and drink, tries to take it away in many ways. Like a great enemy would try to destroy our country or us as a people by destroying our food supply, by destroying the means by which we receive that food. So also the devil operates with regard to this particular sacrament. has many ways to direct our faith away from the food and drink that it receives. This morning, we're going to focus especially on the fact that the sacrament is a sacrament of eating and drinking. Just like in baptism, we focused upon the one main essential kernel that is at the heart of that sacrament, namely that it's a sacrament of washing. When we look at the Lord's Supper, we see that it is a sacrament of eating and drinking. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So let's do that. And we're going to look, first of all, at the significance of that eating and drinking. And secondly, its work. 
What happens when we eat and drink? Why do we eat and drink? And then finally, the assurance. Now that's related, of course, to the work, but we want to make sure that we understand the connection between the strengthening and nourishing work and this assurance. What's the connection there? When we look at the significance of this particular sacrament, we must look at the essential element of the sign, the the thing that is being signified. We learned that sacraments are signs and seals. They're pictures of something. So to understand the significance, to understand what this sacrament is all about, you have to get at the essence of the picture. And we focus especially upon the essence of it. There's other things that are related to what we eat and what we drink. But simply look at the fact that when you take the sacrament and everything that goes on, the one thing we should take away and understand is that it's a sacrament of eating and drinking. Eating and drinking. That is, we should look at earthly, physical eating and drinking, Think about what that is. Think about all the things related to eating and drinking. Perhaps even what it takes to eat and drink. How we get the food that we eat and the drink that we drink. And we should be able to see that as a picture, not only of the sacrament, but then in the sacrament to be able to apply that to the spiritual invisible reality that's being pictured. In the first place, we ought to see that it is a sign and seal. Just as we saw with regard to baptism, there's the sign and then there's the reality that we call baptism the application of water to an infant or an adult, either by sprinkling or dipping in, doesn't matter. We call that baptism, but that's only by sacramental union because we're identifying the reality with the sign, but we learn that that's not the real baptism. The real thing being applied to the infant or to the adult is not water by a minister, but what's being applied is the blood of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that's helpful because when we look at the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the very same thing occurs. We may look at the controversy over the Lord's Supper, and we may think about all the words that are being taught here, but we should remember it's really pretty simple. In the sacrament, you have signs. Bread that's broken and wine that's poured out, which bread and wine then subsequently is given to you by the hand of the minister through the elders, the Lord's or the Lord's Supper, according to Lord's Day 28, really comes from the hands of the minister. But that's not the reality. We eat the bread and we drink the wine, but the reality isn't that. Now, it's called the reality, again, by way of sacramental union. It's a sign, so we're referring to the sign by the reality. 
But just like in baptism, what's being applied is not water, but blood. And it's not being applied by the hand of the minister, but by the hand of the Holy Spirit, as it were. So also in the Lord's Supper. What we're really eating and drinking, what we're really ingesting, and ingesting now not with our physical hand and our physical mouth, but a spiritual hand and mouth, is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was shed at Calvary. And we're eating and drinking it by faith. It's that simple. Now, by bringing this out, one of the things that is helpful for us is to realize the close connection between baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's differences, crucial differences, But there are also very much similarities, as is brought out by the fact that they're both called sacraments. But you will also see, if you look at the Heidelberg Catechism, look at the Scriptures, look at the overall teaching of the Holy Scriptures on sacraments, and you will will see that there's very much similarities. One of them I just pointed out. One of them is that both of them take a very common thing, even a very necessary thing, not an optional thing in human life, but a very necessary part of human life, one that's very common and makes it a sacrament. We saw with regard to baptism, washing. Washing is common in our life. We shower, we bathe, we have to clean things. And we know why we have to clean them. And our Lord Jesus Christ saw fit to take that and make it a sacrament. There's a special washing now. And that special washing is a sign and seal of something very important from spiritual life, even necessary. Well, so also the Lord's Supper, same thing. It should be amazing to us. It should be something that we consider when we consider the sacrament that the Lord saw fit to take now, another very common, even essential element of earthly physical life, something that's so common we hardly think about it, yet so important is it, and that's eating and drinking. They're very much alike. As soon as we think about the Lord's Supper, we ought to reflect on when do we eat and drink? Well, oftentimes it's one of the first things that we do when we get up in the morning. We, we, we get up from our slumber. We've been dead in sleep. We've been awakened. And one of the first things that happens is we feel hungry and we know, we know we're going to need sustenance. Sustenance for the day. For some, it may even be the most important meal of their day. But we begin, we, we often eat three times a day, regularly throughout the day spaced generally the same time apart. We often, and usually, eat and drink with one another, with our family and friends, usually our family. We eat and drink as parents with our children, and children with parents. And we're serving food that's appropriate for them and what they need. When mother and father prepare food, and when they themselves eat, we, we know the difference between food that may taste good and that we like, but we may eat much of it. It's more for the palate, more for the taste. It's not nourishment. 
all these things belong to that reality of the Lord's Supper. Notice, too, that the Heidelberg Catechism uses similar language. There's not only similar sort of signs and pictures being placed here, but notice that in both sacraments, the Heidelberg Catechism says that by them were admonished and assured. Sometimes it says we're obliged and assured. With both of them. Question answer 75 with regard to the Lord's Supper. How are they admonished and assured by the Holy Supper? In question answer 69, we were asked, how art thou admonished and assured by holy baptism? Now that's important. With both sacraments, there's an admonishment. That is, an urging, a commandment, an obliging that it comes with. They're not optional. The Lord is not indifferent on whether we partake or not. He doesn't leave it up to us. And now you understand that admonishment and obliging has to do with the nature of these sacraments themselves, what they represent. In the same way that you would admonish your children to go now and take a shower, go take your bath, Go get clean. The Lord does so with regard to us in baptism. In the same way that you would admonish your children, now go sit down at the table. We're going to eat. And frequently, even throughout the meal, you might have to turn to your children and say, now eat your food. Quit playing. Stop what you're doing. Eat. You have to eat. Some people have questioned that language. Well, why does it have to be an admonishment. Why is there an obliging? Isn't it true that we're free? Isn't it true that we live by grace? And the answer is, well, of course it is. But that's exactly why there's an admonishment and obliging. Not only that, but if you think about the pictures again, and when we admonish and oblige with regard to the physical sign, why do we have to do that? And the answer is because our children are sinners and we are sinners. If we don't take a bath, pretty soon we stink, we reek. If we don't eat, pretty soon our rib cage starts showing through. In fact, one of the things to remember about this admonishing and obliging is what the Apostle Paul said in the passage that we read, 1 Corinthians 11. Remember that? He talks to them about how the fact that they were coming together to eat and drink. They may even have called it the Lord's Supper, but the Apostle was saying, no, 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 you're just eating and drinking. But the whole point was, is you're not really partaking of the Lord's body and blood. You may be having broken bread and maybe even having some wine, but others are denied it. There's all sorts of sin and shenanigans going on. And you know what the result is? You people are weak and sickly. Some even sleep. That's a euphemism for they're spiritually dead. They've starved to death. Now why is the apostle talking about? Well, he's talking about what we even need ourselves to be reminded of. We're admonished and obliged because if we don't eat and drink, we're going to die. We're going to be weak and sickly. Just like if we don't wash ourselves, we're going to stink. And the Heidelberg Catechism is not afraid to use that language. Also, like baptism, the Lord's Supper 
has a power to it. We're going to look at that next. There's a real power. It's a means of grace. We know grace is a power. It's a means by which a certain power is given to us. We are empowered through the sacrament. And if you ask, well, where does that power come from? The answer is not that it comes from the elements themselves as such. There is no such power in the elements themselves. Simply by being baptized with water at the hands of the minister does not make you a child of God. It does not regenerate you all by itself. Only the blood of Jesus Christ and the application of it by the Spirit can do that. Same with the Lord's Supper. There's no inherent power in that piece of bread or in that little cup of wine. The power is in the sacrament, however. Don't minimize that. Again, I want to remind you of something that was brought up with regard to baptism. Against the danger that we say, well, okay, I recognize there's no inherent power in the elements themselves. Therefore, whether I participate or not really doesn't matter. Maybe, maybe I can have a child and just not present the child for baptism. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter if I partake of the Lord's Supper or not. No, against that notion, we have to remember we're talking about a sacrament, a sacrament that is admonished of and obliged, and its power is derived from the fact that it's a sacrament. It's different from all other washings. It's different from all other eatings and drinkings. And that power is derived from the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ Himself instituted it. Instituted as the head of the church. Instituted as the family member who is head who is Lord and King and says, I know what my church needs. And I provide for them these two sacraments. These two means of grace in addition to the Word. And they need them. They're reliant upon them. So that power is derived from that. Nevertheless, hopefully you can see too that the sacraments are different. The church has always recognized that or should recognize that. There's a difference. Baptism is administered once, which we noted was rather strange because it's not quite in keeping with the picture. We fre frequently wash. We wash all the time. But everyone, at least most everyone, recognizes we don't get baptized again and again and again. Our creeds say we are but once baptized. That's a little strange because it doesn't fit the picture, but it has to do with the reality. We said that baptism was a picture, a sign, and a seal that we are joined to Jesus Christ by faith. We are regenerated. Well, that only happens once. Just like birth, we are born again only once. Once given life, once given that life, it's an eternal life, an everlasting life. There's a difference. But the Lord's Supper is repeated, and every time the Lord's Supper is taught, even Jesus Himself in the institution of it made clear, this is to be done over and over and over again. And here, it more closely fits with the earthly picture, that we eat again and again, and we drink again and again. But even there, there is a difference, and it's one the Apostle rather much addresses with the Corinthians. They had turned, you see, the sacrament of the supper into an ordinary supper. 
And that's a real danger for us. The church has always been aware of that danger. It explains why, for example, John Calvin was in favor of having the Lord's Supper every Sabbath day. He understood the benefit. He understood the power. He understood how it strengthens faith. He understood its work. So why not have it every Lord's Day? Why not have it every Sunday? And the church said no. As much as the church has reverenced that man and honored that man and his genius that God gave him, here it parted ways and said no. No, we see a danger. We see the same danger that was found in Corinth, which is pretty soon it's just an ordinary supper. Pretty soon it loses its significance. Pretty soon it loses its importance. There's something special and wonderful. And even though, yes, following the picture, it's something we do repeatedly, we're going to not do it every Lord's Day. And so you have in our own churches, for example, the fact that according to our church order, we have it at least four times a year. We could have it more, but at least we believe that that's a proper balance. That belongs, we believe, to the liberty of the church to decide and the members of the church to decide through its elders and its offices. But be that as it may, that's a reflection of the difference. And again, it follows from earthly physical life. Once you're alive, you have to eat. You have to drink. In, in fact, you eat and drink because you're alive. Those two things are related. They follow from one another. You can't eat and drink if you're dead. You can't eat and drink if you haven't been born again. And all those things are reflected in that sacrament. Another thing that's helpful for us to remember too, and it too has a connection to baptism, one that we ought not forget, is that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper comes in the place of the Passover. I bring this up because that's similar with the other sacrament of baptism that's often denied, and strangely by those who don't deny that the Lord's Supper replaces the Passover. That's pretty clear, pretty obvious. Everybody understands what happened there in the upper room that night that Jesus was celebrating the Passover, but He also instituted a new sacrament. And then He made clear what He did by giving it to the Apostle Paul. But the same thing was done with baptism, as we saw. And the Bible makes it clear in the same way, by the way. In the same book. Remember I told you that one of the key texts, and we read it last time with regard to a baptism, that the proof that baptism is the place of circumcision is found right in the book of 1 Corinthians, where those two words are used interchangeably. They're used as, as the same thing because they have the same meaning. And in the same book, chapter 5 now, the same thing is done, where you will find Christ referred to not only as the Passover, but as the Lord's Supper. I bring that up about the Lord's Supper replacing the Passover because there we see additional understanding and meaning to the sacrament. 
It's why from time to time it's good for us to study the Passover and what went on there because the symbolism is so important. One thing that's helpful to remember is that like the Passover, the sacrament remembers an actual event. The Passover was always celebrated on the 14th of the month Abib, and that because that was the actual day the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt. Oh yes, they still had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, but that was the day they actually were freed. Which freedom really began, importantly and symbolically, with the crossing of the Red Sea, which is why the New Testament refers to the Red Sea as a baptism, and a picture of baptism. And then that whole deliverance, although it began on the 14th of Abib, and it began with the crossing of the Red Sea, and it lasted 40 years, it really ended with their crossing the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, the great picture, of course, of heaven. And the children of Israel in the New Testament all knew when they remembered that date, what they were really remembering was their deliverance by the Messiah. That the Messiah was coming. And He would, not now Moses, and not now the angel of the Lord as such, but Jesus Himself would deliver them from sin and from death. From that bondage symbolized by Egypt. And through that deliverance, they would live a pilgrimage in this life. The wilderness of this life. And in all of that, in many ways, is still pictured in the Lord's Supper. Only now we're looking back upon the slaying of the Lamb Himself. Not the slaying of the Lamb symbolically, but the actual slaying of the Lamb of God. Because that was done, the Old Testament sacrifice is taken away. And in the New, we have now actual broken bread and wine poured out reflecting back on the event. But it also is a sacrament that reminds us of the here and now and the future. Now let's look a little closer at its work. If you have to say, well, what's the work? What's actually going on in this sacrament of eating and drinking? It's as simple as looking at, well, what's the work? What goes on when we eat and drink? It's not more complicated than that. What happens when we eat and drink? I think even little children here understand is, well, that food and drink goes inside of me. And then the life that I have, the life inside of me, goes to work on that food and drink, and it, and it breaks it down, it digests it. And it goes to all the different parts of my body, and it, it supplies food for them. My body needs liquid, my body needs solids, it needs nutrients, it needs minerals, it needs all sorts of things. I don't even know what it needs, but I get all of that from the food and drink. And by that, I grow up. I started out a little baby, but by this food and drink, I grow up. I'm nourished, I'm strengthened. I find that all my bones grow, my muscles grow and then they grow together. There's a, almost, as we say, a sort of unification of our body. Sinews and tendons and muscles and bones and organs. All of it binds together stronger and stronger and stronger. Now, again, the picture breaks down because of death. There's all sorts of things that happen that, well, it eventually leads to death. 
But, but it's all there in the picture, the importance of it, the necessity of it. What goes on? And now, this enables us to address the necessity of that. From time to time, overzealous defenders of sovereign particular grace look at things like this and say, well, your language, reverend, and really the language then, the criticism falls upon the Heidelberg Catechism and Scriptures themselves, is conditional language. You're saying that I must eat and drink to stay alive. That in order for my life to be preserved, in order for me to attain eternal life, I must eat and drink. And my response is, yes, that's right. That's correct. You're charging me, however, with conditional theology as way, way out of line and wrong. In fact, it's as foolish and dumb as saying something like this, well, because I'm alive, I don't have to eat and drink. Or if you tell me I have to eat and drink in order to stay alive, that that food and drink now becomes a condition to my staying alive, it's that foolish. And again, if you look at the picture, I found all the answers to the dilemma, which is really self-created. Think about it. Just think about it a little bit. Number one, indeed, God does use means to keep us alive, does He not? Does anybody have a problem, does anybody see a problem with saying that if you don't eat and drink physically, you will die? Now, does that make eating your eating and your drinking condition to staying alive? The answer is no. Your eating and drinking don't do that. <laughs> what makes you stay alive? Well, it's all the stuff that goes on with your life that makes you stay alive. Oh yes, eating and drinking and putting in your mouth is something that must be done. Without that you starve. That's the means God uses. But now is that why you're alive? Is that why you stay alive? No. The answer is because the body goes to work. The body that's alive goes to work on that food and it breaks it down and it turns... Do you do all that? Even in earthly physical life, are you, you consciously doing all that? And the answer is no. No. Not only that, but you have to be alive to eat and drink. Eating and drinking cannot be a condition to that life because they don't give that life. There may be a sense in which we say they're means to sustain that life, but they're means that God uses, not that you use. They're means God uses to sustain that life. But did they give that life? No, then they're not a condition to that life. You only eat and drink because you're already alive. And then think about this. What is it that makes you hungry and thirsty? Well, it's again the life. There's something about life. There's something about the gift of life that makes us hungry and thirsty. Dead people aren't hungry and thirsty. They're just dead. And it's all there in the picture. It's very simple. It's very obvious. In the picture, in the sacrament itself, is the refutation of all that nonsense especially when there's an overly pious, overly zealous attempt to defend the grace of God to the point where I have heard some even deny that it's a means of grace. But that's what it's called, a means of grace. So there's a work 
that goes on. But it's a work of the sacrament. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Oh yes, there's an admonishment and obliging to eat and drink. But even that is by faith. And faith is never a work. Oh yes, faith functions as an instrument. It's the hand and mouth of the soul. Oh yes, faith must take in. Faith must take in our Lord Jesus Christ. Just like your hand takes in food and your mouth chews it. Our fathers are not afraid to use that language. But nevertheless, it's a means of grace. It's a means by which we partake of grace. And it's the grace that does all the work. Even the eating and drinking. Even the mouth and the hand part is the gift of God. And the child of God recognizes that. In the same way, we recognize that with regard to our food. How do you sit down on the table and eat? How do you look at the nourishment do you provide from your food? Oh yes, you might be very thankful to your wife for making it. Thankful about the fact that you have plates and you have a fork in your hand. Thankful about the fact that you even have food to eat. But all of it is thankful to God. You realize it's God that's provided you all the means to eat and drink, even the hungry and the thirsty part of it. That's the Reformed faith. That's true deference to the grace of God. That gives all the honor and glory to Him. And it's really no different than what happens in earthly life. What father and mother sits down at her table and says, look at all this that we've done. We don't do that. We may do that. We recognize the sin of that, don't we? So what is the work? When we look closer at the work, spiritually, it's the sustaining, the strengthening, and the confirming of our faith. It's amazing that when you think about it, we know we're really sustaining and strengthening a spiritual life. The Bajra Confession makes that clear, that what's the work is really the nourishing and the strengthening of a life we have, a spiritual life. But it's also put in terms of faith. Well, why is that? Because in this spiritual life, faith is the thing that connects us up to the main life itself. We've all learned that our life is really God Himself. Our life is the Spirit. And the source of it is all in God. And faith is the means by which we receive that life. So to strengthen that life, faith must be strengthened. And when faith is strengthened, then that life is strengthened. They go together. So we can look at it from two points of view as regard to the work. Number one is the means by which we receive these things is strengthened. Through the eating and the drinking of the Lord's Supper, faith, which we don't say really truly faith is weak, but really what happens is faith lives alongside of another life, our earthly physical life, which is sinful, which makes all kinds of mistakes, which contradicts faith, which argues with faith, which battles against faith. And because of that, faith needs to be strengthened, made strong. Faith needs to know how to fight back. Faith has to have certainty, even when we're living in a life, a physical life of uncertainty. And the Lord's Supper does that. It strengthens, as it were, the ability to eat and drink. The ability to live and be sustained even when there's troubling times, just like earthly physical life. If you have a very... Um, if you have a job that requires a lot of exertion, a lot of strength, a lot of power, you eat more, don't you? 
You require more sustenance, don't you? Well, the spiritual life is, is like that. Some people live in circumstances where their spiritual life is, as it were, stressed more, requires more exertion. And so God provides for that. And that's done, first of all, by confirming, strengthening faith. And now remember what faith is. Faith is the knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed in His Word. That means more and more and more, when faith is strengthened, more and more and more, I believe that what the Word of God tells me is true. And it's true for me. Notice the emphasis in the Lord's Day on me, I. That's because faith is personal, I. And what especially it believes and what it understands and with regard to what is strengthened is that Christ gave Himself for me, that Christ is my life, that Christ is my substance, that Christ is the one who has forgiven my sins, that Christ is the one who will keep me and sustain me. Those things are strengthened. And the idea there is therefore your spiritual life is strengthened too. They go together. And so much is that true that there's growth there. So the work is to make that to grow. It's just not to keep it going, to sustain it. But like earthly food and drink, the the power is to cause it to grow, to strengthen, to be able to do more than it could previously. It's all built into the picture. And so much is that true that the catechism uses language that may seem shocking at first. That through eating and drinking, we become more and more united to Christ. If you want an explanation of how that can be, it seems to me that you're either united or you're not. Well, that's not what they mean. But they are expressing this. That it's possible to be united to Christ and then become even more united. And if you say, well, how can that be? Well, simply look at the picture again. There's a branch on a tree. It's a young tree. A little branch. There's no doubt the branch is connected to the tree, but as that branch grows, as that tree grows, as the whole thing grows and matures, is not that branch more and more united? There's more and more sinews. There's more and more cells. There's, there's more and more connections, as it were. And the same thing true of earthly life with regard to our earthly life, so also in the sacrament. It's really a whole different way of looking at our life. On the one hand, we're born again. On the other hand, on one hand, we have eternal life. On the one hand, Jesus Christ has given Himself for us as a sacrifice for sin so that all of our sins are forgiven. On the other hand, all of that has to grow. It has to mature. And God is continually bringing that to us over and over and over again, and it's built right into the sacrament. There's no denying it. You say, why do you need that? Is because the, are you saying that the earthly life is, there's something faulty and wrong with that? No! Not with a spiritual life. It's eternal life. But it's eternal life that still needs to be nourished and strengthened. It has to grow. It's God's purpose. It's God's plan. And this is how. Now, lastly, just want to consider the assurance. There's something amazing about the assurance. And the assurance, of course, is the assurance of faith. Faith is assurance. And the sacrament, by increasing faith, therefore, increases especially assurance. What it does is strengthens the assurance, number one, that Christ indeed gave Himself for me. Not just for others. Not just for the church. 
but for me. I believe that along with that also goes the fact that more and more I'm convinced he gave himself for others too. Even sinful brothers and sisters. That that's part of the love that we grow in, that we see more and more. It's just not all about me. It is about me. We have to understand that. Faith doesn't just say, I believe that he died for a bunch of other people, but me. And there's assurance of that through the sacrament. I believe that as much as I'm eating and drinking these elements, but also for others, with those with whom I partake. And again, this is in keeping with the idea of eating and drinking. And what happens is that the body is knit together. It grows together. It's unified together. There's an appreciation of the work of Christ, not only in myself, but in others. That He's causing them to grow. He's causing them to learn in the same way that He is with regard to me. And that, in the end, is what we need. When one looks at the sacrament, this is an opportunity for us to remember that God has given us this in our weakness and in our sinfulness and in our frailty exactly because it's what we need. What we need is to be assured. What we're always doubting is exactly these things. And God in the sacrament says, that's not right. You shouldn't be doubting. You shouldn't be filled with doubts and concerns and fears. That's not normal. That's not right. Just like a child around its parents' table would be unusual. It would be weird if they would sit there and wonder, did this food and drink really come from mom and dad? Are they giving this to me to poison me? Do they mean me harm or good? We would say, that's strange. That's weird. Remember, the Lord gave us these things to assure us because He wants us to be assured, to know and believe without a shadow of a doubt. And again, notice how it brings honor and glory to Him, the sacrament of eating and drinking. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee for the blessed and holy sacrament of the supper, the supper of eating and drinking. And pray that this time, this morning, may be a period of reflection upon the great, great gift of grace, this means of grace that has been given to us, that we may remember how we are admonished and assured to partake of by faith, not in unbelief, and thereby also be strengthened and to grow more and more into Thee and unto Thee, our Lord and God, who is so gracious to us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.